It's Wednesday, September the 8th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We're going to be joined in a few minutes by Sinn Féin's Owen O'Brien to discuss his new book about the failings of the Irish building industry and its regulation. But first, Jack Horgan-Jones from our political staff is here. And yesterday was a big day for Simon Coveney. How did he perform, Jack? Um, could have been better, could have been worse. You know, I think that one of the, the main takeaways from all of this um, this ongoing saga, I suppose it's in the saga space uh, at this stage, is that, that Simon Coveney is, is really damaged. Um, he's damaged himself badly. He's drifted through this, uh, through this crisis. Um, at several important points, he's made it worse. Um, firstly, that very cranky interview he did at RTE um, back at the in the, in the crucible of the the crisis, and then and then through being semi engaged at the committee last week, and he seems to have been kind of semi engaged throughout. And you talk to people around government, and they suggest that you know he's been very busy with the uh, the UN Security Council and and with Afghanistan and all the rest of it. And of course, those are his departmental responsibilities, and it's only right and proper that he would be focused on those. But you know, politicians do have political duties to, to, to husband as well, you know, and, and there is a sense that, that Coveney has been, you know, found wanting on that regard. And, and, and that has been compounded by uh, the fact that he deleted texts. There's been shifting explanations as to why he did that, garbled accounts of, of what happened and, and you know, elements of, of the data dump that took place when the Department of Foreign Affairs put a lot of FOI documents seem to undermine his story. To bring it forward to, to yesterday, I mean, we are in a bit of a limbo on this story, I would argue. He didn't do anything yesterday that would kill the story. And for the first time in a long time, he didn't do anything that actually made it worse. So we're at this kind of weird interstitial stage where, you know, there is no single sin big enough that Coveney has committed where people can say that that's a resigning matter, clearly and objectively and empirically, you have to go. But neither has anyone, and Coveney in particular, and this runs up to and includes his appearance at the committee yesterday, been able to get it off the pitch. So it's more moving to the stage where, you know, is this becoming a problem for government? Is this becoming a distraction from the good work of government? And, and does something need to be done to address to address that, i.e. does someone need to go or does someone need to resign? I still don't think there's a tipping point there either. So we're just trundling along, it's refusing to go away, it's refusing to die, and it keeps showing this capacity to to sling its hook into other political figures, as we saw earlier on this week with Pascal Donoghue. So it's this kind of, it's a toxic mess, Hugh, that's, that's how I would describe it. It's a toxic mess that's not going away, and Coveney hasn't been able to kill it off even yesterday. Is it possible at all that as the political agenda, you know, ramps up a bit now and the all returns and people start talking about the budget and there's various other things in the mix that perhaps that might just take the heat out of it and you're just really left with uh, direct damage to Simon Coveney and perhaps more broadly a point which has been made by a couple of people in the Irish Times of the last day or so including in our editorial this morning a general sense that Fine Gael have been in power too long and this is all a symptom of that kind of thing. I think that on balance that is the most likely outcome that this just kind of it doesn't get a fresh wind in its sails and it slips off the agenda. And we are left with this impression that, you know, the Minister of Foreign Affairs has badly mishandled it, that Fine Gael in particular are costed too long in power, uh, detached, remote, all the rest of it, and just becomes a kind of permanent or semi-permanent black mark on both the party uh, in the eyes of voters. Uh, It could, it, could, it will become something that the opposition used to beat up on them. And also it becomes something that, that you know, sours the watering hole between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. That, that's one, and as I say, I think it's probably the most likely outcome at the moment just because people are too invested in the survival of this government to, to pull it down when there's no clear and present reason as to why they should do so. One wild card I would pay attention to is Catherine Zappone. Um, Catherine Zappone obviously thought, and we see this from the text messages that she sent on the 4th of March, she thought she had a gig. She thought she had a job. Simon Coveney says that she was mistaken in that impression, although he didn't try to correct it at the time, and he didn't try and correct the impression that she also had that she was due to start it in June when she followed up with later correspondence. If she were at some stage to come back onto the pitch and offer her explanation 
for why she thought that, to tell the world what Simon Coveney told her and what gave rise to her belief that, you know, effectively, as we see from the text, she thought this was over the line. That could become quite problematic and it would be problematic particularly for him if it uh, ran counter to his explanation that he gave at the, at the committee yesterday. You know, will she, she? we know she's going to likely be invited to the committee. Will she be able to resist that? Quite possibly. I mean, you know, there's there's a strong possibility, nay, probability that Catherine Zappone probably just wants to move on and forget about this episode entirely. But people have long memories. I mean, Catherine Zappone is going to be in public life at some point again in the future. Is she just going to hunker down on the Upper West Side for the rest of her life and never step in front of a microphone ever again? I don't think so. So that that that's a potential wild card. That, that's something that could be a bit of a wobble down the road again for Coveney and, and the government, even if it does slip off the agenda in the short or immediate term. And of course, it's not even just her testimony. She presumably, unless she operates some similar data deletion policy on her on her cell phone, she presumably has the proof in the form of the responses that, she, or, or or perhaps no responses that she got from Simon Coveney to these uh, to these uh, texts, which essentially seem to assume that she, the gig was hers. I think that's true. Yeah, and I mean. The problem is that, like, she is, she is far from the clutches of the Oireachtas Committee or the state or anything like that. But, like, there were a couple of good points made yesterday Yesterday, that, you know, she still felt close enough to the Irish state that she was in a position to go out and represent our interests on the international stage. You know, she still just does draw a pension, presumably, from the Irish state. She was a, a figure in Irish public life for a long time. She was a member of cabinet for a long time. Can she just neatly sever her links with, with, with Ireland? Can she do that in good conscience and, and not engage with any parliamentary processes arising from this, from this, uh, from this controversy? I don't know. I mean, she can if she wants, but, you know, is it, is it right and, and, and proper that you do so. I think that's a, that's another question entirely. Last question, I have to ask you, just in terms of what you said at the top of it. Does this mean that Simon Coveney will never lead Fine Gael? Ah, never say never, right? But um, I think that, that Coveney, as the obvious leader of Fine Gael that isn't, uh, that isn't Leo Varadkar, that's slipping a little bit, all right? You know, and I think that there's a, there's a few other things, if we just park the Zappone controversy for a moment, I think there are a few other things where he damaged his chances of being the default next leader of Fine Gael already. I'm, I'm, I'm minded of the fact that he let it be known that he was interested in the European Commissioner job last year. You know, that is a, a de facto signal that, you know, there is a job or there is an opportunity big enough for me that I will step out of domestic politics and it's not, and, and, and will step out of, of the race to become Taoiseach or, you know, my, my ambition to become Taoiseach or leader of Fine Gael is not absolute. So I think that there's that. There's also... There's a kind of remoteness to Coveney, you know, and, and, and even though the, he was the preference of the grassroots of Fine Gael at the time of the leadership contest with Leo Varadkar, I think there's a remoteness to him when it comes to parliamentary party colleagues, which means that he doesn't have a, an enormous constituency of support there. So I think that's an issue. And I think that also there's a generational thing. I mean, I think that Coveney is probably in his, his late 40s at this stage, by no means an elderly man or an older man or, or a man nearing the age of retirement. But, you know, there are there there are opportunities for him outside of of the narrow frame of Irish political life if he were to to to, to want them, and you know there is a generational thing within Fine Gael. People do at some stage start thinking about right who's who's coming up behind the Varadkar and Coveney generation, and they do think about people like I would imagine, particularly if Pascal Dunne, who's not interested. I would imagine in the short term, people like uh, Simon Harris and, and Helen McEntee. We shall see. All very interesting. Jack, stick with us. We'll be joined by Owen O'Brien in a minute. Now, if there is one thing that I think commands universal agreement across the contemporary Irish political landscape, it's that the dysfunctional and failing system of housing provision is the defining challenge of the day. It's almost certainly going to decide the fate of the current coalition government, and many think it will be the catalyst that brings Sinn Féin to power after the next election. But as anyone who has considered the matter for more than a few minutes will know, this is a complex and multifactorial problem whose roots go back for many decades and which goes well beyond the simple construction of more homes, essential though that may be. One recurring problem which has caused misery to thousands of people has been the inadequate systems of quality assurance, regulation and accountability, which successive governments have put in place for the building industry. These have led to repeated scandals over substandard, shoddy and often life-threatening defects in homes across the country and very little evidence of those responsible being held to account. 
Sinn Féin's housing spokesperson Owen O'Brien's new book, Defects, Living with the Legacy of the Celtic Tiger, goes through all of these problems right up to and including the current mica crisis in Donegal and Mayo. And Owen joins us now. Owen, welcome to the podcast. Hugh, thanks for having me. A timely book. Uh, was it in the pipeline for, for a long time or are you reacting to events on the ground, of which there are many at the moment, obviously? I suppose I've been working on I've been working on the issue of, of defects uh, as a politician for about a decade, both as a, a councillor in Central County Council, and then as a TD on the Oireachtas Housing Committee. So uh, after I completed Home, why public housing is the answer, I kind of took a decision in 2019 to start working on this. And in fact, the, the book should have been written in January 2020, uh, but the, the, the writing was cut short by the calling of the general election, so that delayed it somewhat, uh, and probably for the better because. Obviously, at that time, we thought the defective block scheme, as it was emerging, was going to be satisfactory. We learned, of course, through the course of this year that it wasn't. So the delay of the book, I suppose, has been quite helpful because it's allowed us to capture the most um, up-to-date developments. And in fact, we had to delay the publication of the book because we were literally about to go to print uh, the week of the Mike uh, uh, um, Pyrite protest over the summer. Uh, and obviously we pulled the printing and added a few thousand words just to capture all that too. So I suppose like the previous book, it's something I've been working on for a long time, but but the book really was meant to come out kind of last year, this year. I mean, we should say first that a substantial amount of the book is devoted to the personal stories of people who've been affected by these uh, by these things, sometimes in really dreadful ways, including um, uh, a person who took their life by suicide in connection with the, the, the Priory Hall uh, fiasco. Um, and we should point out that these are real people. And I think you, you go to a lot of pains in the book to do this. Real people, real lives at this kind of most crucial part of their lives for many people when they're setting up a home. They make a, a huge commitment, a huge financial and emotional commitment. And then it all goes horribly wrong. Yeah, one of the things I suppose that has, has frustrated many of us over the, the, the public discourse is the very legalistic way this has been discussed, particularly when government was was refusing to accept its own responsibility. And you'd have that constant refrain uh, of defects or a matter between the buyers and sellers of homes. So I suppose, and again, in contrast to the, the earlier book on public housing, I wanted to make this more, more a, a book about the humans who live in these homes as well as the policy issues. So exactly as you said, half of the book tells the story of, of uh, uh, five families. And in fact, there's a, a, a sixth family that appear later in the book, four families from Dublin, one from County Clare and one from Donegal. And I wanted to try and capture that that human story of the excitement of buying your first home, the sense of security and stability it gave the people who bought them, the shock of discovering the defects, the confusion of not knowing who to turn to. Uh, and then I suppose the, the anger, frustration, and in many cases, disbelief that nobody is actually responsible, um, not the builders, not the state, uh, not the banks or the insurers. And I was just very, very lucky uh, that a number of families, and they are all real stories, a, a small number of them are anonymized at the request of, of the families. Uh, but everything from people buying their first time home uh, uh, to a, a couple of retirees kind of moving into to a, a retirement apartment, if you like, uh, to finish out the, the last decades of their lives. And and you mentioned Stephanie Meehan and Fia Cradaly, and and like while while, while Stephanie has has told her story before, most famously on 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 uh, the Late Late Show, I open the book with the story of Stephanie, who obviously was a one of the first residents of Priory Hall, discovering Fiacra's body uh, uh, following his suicide, two years into the tragedy of of Priory Hall and and all of the stresses and strains that that had caused on their relationship, to demonstrate that while this is is about cost. This is about much more than money. This is where people, uh, families and their children sleep at night uh, and the impact of defects. I mean, I can only imagine what families uh, living with defective block in Donegal and, and Mike and Michael Doherty, uh, who features near the end of the book, who's one of those families, gives us a little bit of a sense of that. But if, if your home is your stability, if it's the place where you retreat for safety uh, every night and at the weekends, when that home literally isn't safe, when that home is literally crumbling because of defects you didn't create, this is much more than just money. This is this is people's uh, uh, life and death, and 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 death in the case of Fiacre Daly. And, and I hope I've done justice to the family stories in that half of the book. And Jack, there were reports of yours in the Irish Times cited on more than one occasion uh, in the book. So you've covered some of those similar kind of stories again. And there is 
there's no doubt, is there, that there's a recurring pattern of these problems emerge and then um, the, the people who live in mostly apartments, but not exclusively apartments, just discover that the, the level of protection that they have is just incredibly low compared to if you had bought a washing machine or a car. Yeah, it's true. And, and, and they're they're undermatched in any battle that might come their way arising from it. Uh, or overmatched, rather. I mean, just not not to dwell on the personal for for too long, um, because there are meaty policy issues here. But you know, it is it is so corrosive for these people. I have a very vivid memory, and I've I've talked to many people who have been affected by this. But I have a very vivid memory of sitting in the apartment of of one woman's house where she lived with her family or apartment, rather, and it was situated as these developments so often are in the kind of the very edge of the northern uh, Dublin northern uh, commuter belt. And um, not only did she have to live in an apartment that was uh, riddled with fire defects and unsafe as a, as a result um, and, and you know, live with that omnipresent danger. Her kids were sleeping there. There was also in, in a particularly kind of cruel twist, there was an issue with their fire alarm, which meant that it went, and this is the fire alarm of the building, which meant that it went off all the time. So you had this kind of, you know, just this depletive effect on someone's mental health of living there. And then once every few days, they get this false alarm, which, you know, all of a sudden, are all these things coming home to roost? Is there a fire? And it was just totally ruinous on this woman's mental health. Her children were racked with anxiety over it. You know, it was just this kind of constant fear that was stalking them. And, and, and you know, these people, as you say, when they look to for redress, when they look to say, right, I didn't build this, I bought this, you know, in good faith. And, you know, where 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 might I kind of get some retribution for this? They they find themselves in the first instance, you know, often not covered by insurance policies. And then if they seek legal remedy, the costs of pursuing a builder would be so astronomical um, that it may not be viable. And in many instances, either that builder has in reality disappeared or the special purpose vehicle um, which they built a, a particular set of, of apartments through has, has also disappeared. So there's no legal entity there to sue. Um, and, you know, the, the, the recession that followed the, the construction boom did genuinely clear a lot of these people out. So they're, they're just not there to be sued anymore. And, and, and even if they were, and, and on the occasions that they are, your chances of, of success are are slim. And historically, the state has always had kittens really about engaging with this, you know, because as Owen said, you know, in a narrow legal sense, they are correct. It is an issue between um, between the, the owner occupier or the owner and the developer. Um, but I think in a broader sense, um, there has been a duty there that they've been in neglect of in terms of addressing at a systemic level the problems that this that this has has given. And I think that's that when you boil it down, I think there's a financial concern because they just don't know how deep this financial hole could be. They don't know what they may be putting themselves on the hook for. Um, and that's why there's always been a reticence to engage from, I think, not only at the political level, but also at official level in the Department of Housing and, and probably in the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. So you have this cohort of people who every which way they turn, you know, they don't have they don't have opportunities for, for redress and, and they're underpowered and the, the, the systems that they work within. So, for example, and Owen goes into this in, in great detail in the book, the, the kind of general corporate structure that is associated with uh, an apartment block is called an owner's management company, when you buy an apartment, you become a shareholder in the owner's management company. And this often becomes the de facto method for dealing with, you know, with defects and repair bills that run to the tens or hundreds of thousands or even millions. Like these are set up to look after, you know, trimming the grass vergings and deciding what paint color to, uh, to, to, to paint the lobby. You know, these are not the appropriate corporate structures and they're not, and the people who staff them uh, aren't, adequately skilled to deal with legacy problems of this of this uh of this order you know so every, as i say every which way they they turn they're stumped and there's never even really been historically like i think one of the greatest demonstrations of the disinterest of the state is there's never really been an attempt even to count this problem all we have is estimates you know, we have the result of, of work that we've done in the Irish Times and elsewhere where we've identified individual apartments and individual developments with issues. And, and there are other ones that have come to, to light through the work of other journalists. I'm thinking particularly of Mick Clifford in the Irish Examiner. Um, but the, the rest of it are estimates, extrapolations. We, we've never measured this problem. And I think that that's a function of a fear and a disinterest in addressing it. I want to talk about the present state of the, of the whole 
building environment in a, in a minute, as well as the future one, given that we are supposed to be on the on the verge of a ramping up of of, of building homes across the state over the next three or four years, according to the government's plan. Uh, but Owen, maybe we could just look at the history a little bit, because I mean, you you know, the, the word Celtic Tiger is used on the cover of your book, but in a way, what happened? from the mid-90s onwards was, as we know, the biggest building boom in the history of the state, fueled by fueled by cheap money. But you also had a regulatory system, which had taken a very, very long time, it's interesting to read it in the book, to pass through the innards of the Oireachtas. I think it took almost a decade for this legislation and regulations, this form of self-regulation um, to be passed. And you've got some very interesting quotes from the various debates that took place in the in the in the doll over those years, and some warnings by some, you know, some politicians, particularly I think in Labour and the Workers' Party, about how inadequate the system was. Yeah, and I suppose as a writer, one of the reasons why I take on these projects is because I want to understand the problem, um, and and I suppose the process of deciding to do the book and doing the research allows you to to go back and ask the question: How did we end up? with the kind of regulatory system in this instance that was in place in the Celtic Tire. And even for somebody like me who's been in politics for, for 25 years plus, even I was taken aback by this particular story. It actually begins in the 1960s, would you believe? Uh, large numbers of, of working class families in Dublin were still living in tenements. Periodically, those tenements, because they were in such a bad state of repair, would collapse. And that would lead to a, a kind of an outrage in, in public and political discourse. And at the time of, of the, uh, the the Fenian Street tenement collapses in the mid-60s and, and the death of two young children, the Fianna Fáil government of the day was passing a, a local government planning and development bill. And in that bill, there was a very small provision that empowered the, the minister of the day to put in place what we call a building control regime. I suppose that's a, a regime to ensure that all buildings are built to the standards, uh, construction material and fire safety standards that are set up until that point, we had no statewide building control regime. A few local authorities had bylaws, which had some level of inspection, but it was very patchy. Nothing happened then after the passing of this act until the 1970s. Mid-1970s, uh, the Department of Environment had become uh, the, the department responsible, and they produced a draft building control regime uh, and circulated it to various stakeholders in '76. That was trashed not only by the Construction Industry Federation, but also by an organisation representing architects, engineers and surveyors. They didn't like the fact that it was proposing an independent local authority-led inspection regime. They said it would add to building costs, it would be onerous, slow down construction, and anyway, local authorities didn't have uh, the staff. So, of course, the uh, inevitable response of government was to put that draft on the shelf and, and think no further of it. The Law Reform Commission then published a really important report in 1977. And what they were proposing at that time, because their view was defective buildings was a problem even back then, that there should be a legal responsibility on builders and developers to build in accordance with the regulations. That would be a clear statutory responsibility, which meant if a building wasn't built according to the regulations, the builder stroke developer would be on the hook. They were also concerned with this practice back then, which is still widespread today, uh, of builders uh, uh, constructing a legal entity for doing a particular development uh, uh, and then dissolving that and creating a new legal entity for the next development. And they called actually for that corporate veil to be lifted and individual directors to have that statutory responsibility without the protection of, of a particular company limited by guarantee at the time. That was also uh, uh, trashed by industry, um, again, the same actors in various ways. Uh, and despite the fact that they published uh, a heads of bill in the early 80s uh, for that uh, uh, legal uh, obligation to build uh, properly, uh, that too went nowhere. Nothing then happened, of course, until the very tragic events uh, in the Stardust Nightclub in Artane in 1981 uh, and the loss of, of 48 lives. Uh, as you know, the then government uh, appointed Justice Keane uh, to conduct a tribunal of inquiry. Now, that tribunal of inquiry has been rightly criticised by the families who lost loved ones in the Stardust uh, uh, for many of its findings. The section of that tribunal of inquiry report on the failure of government to implement the 1976 regulations is very, very damning. Justice Keane goes as far as to say, if the 1976 draft regulations had been in place and had been enforced uh, at the time of the Stardust fire, the fire would not have been as severe. And he called for the fire safety elements uh, of those 76 regulations to be implemented within three months, and then for the government to proceed with the rest of the regulations within uh, a number of years. What's really significant, however, after the Stardust, is that there's a coalition government of Fine Gael and Labour. Dick Spring is the Taunish, the Minister for Environment. And Dick Spring brings 
a very, very detailed 80-page memo to Cabinet. And, and Defects, my own book, is the first time we revealed the contents of this memo. And in a sense, the wording of that memo frames every government's response to this issue from then right up to the last government. Uh, and Dick Spring, uh, uh, in his memo, uh, rejects Keane's uh, tribunal findings, uh, particularly that the government uh, and the previous Department of Environment was remiss for not introducing those regulations, and very significantly argues against independent uh, local authority-led inspections for exactly the same reasons that industry had trashed the regulations publicly, including in the pages of the then Irish Times in 1976-77. Spring says that uh, it would be too expensive and too onerous and slow down uh, construction, uh, that local authorities didn't have the staff, and given that the country was in recession, they wouldn't have the finances uh, uh, to um, employ those staff. And therefore, the best approach was one that industry had asked for at the end of the 70s self-certification. Uh, the cabinet approves uh, heads of bill. Uh, and then the junior minister of state was responsibility for planning in that government, uh, Fergus O'Brien, uh, who was the previous Fine Gael Lord Mayor of Dublin when the Stardust fire happened. He then stewards the bill through the dole. Um, obviously, the government falls halfway through, Fianna Fáil take over. So the legislation is kind of... I suppose in popular memory is attached to Fianna Fáil and Porig Flynn, um, but actually Porig Flynn and Fianna Fáil made no changes uh, to what was previously there. Just two two exchanges that I think are very telling from the debate. Uh, the first is in the early passage of the bill when Fergus O'Brien is outlining its contents. Um, uh, Bobby Malloy, who's the then Fianna Fáil opposition spokesperson uh, for environment, he he criticises this bill, saying that uh, uh, it's terrible, it's onerous, industry won't like it, um, uh, it'll push up cost and slow down uh, construction. Uh, and Fergus O'Brien turns around and effectively says, I'm paraphrasing, but effectively says, oh, no, no, this is the bill industry wants. We asked them their opinion and they told us this is the kind of thing that they wanted, which is very revealing of the attitude of both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael at the time. But then there's these really wonderful exchanges, like the, the party, to be fair, who, who were most consistent in their opposition to the self-certification with the Workers' Party. Francis de Rossa, first of all, uh, in the earlier government uh, debates, and then Eamon Gilmore, who took over uh, after 87. And there's this incredible exchange between Gilmore and Porig Flynn. And of course, Porig Flynn, who we know, thanks to the Tribunals of Inquiry, who developed a, a very close relationship uh, and financially profitable relationship uh, with developers through the Celtic Tiger. But Eamon Gilmore says, near the end of the passage of the legislation, 1989, I think it is, if we pass this legislation, a rogue developer and a rogue architect can build a defective building, and if I build that property, I have no comeback. Porig Flynn replies, I don't know why Deputy Gilmore is so obsessed uh, by uh, rogue uh, builders. Uh, builders trade on their reputation. If they build badly, they won't get employed again. Unfortunately, a, a very important Workers' Party amendment to introduce independent local authority self-certification is defeated by Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Labour uh, because Labour's position, while very strong under Mervyn Taylor, shifted when Rory Quinn became the environment spokesperson. His position wasn't the same as Fianna Fáil's and Fine Gael's. He was in favour of self-certification, but he did want a stronger uh, 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 inspection regime, albeit not a mandatory one. But ultimately, uh, he voted against the Workers' Party amendments. Bill passes... And within a couple of years, we enter a building boom. And the reason why I suppose I spend so much time on this story is because you cannot maintain the position that Owen Murphy and the last government maintained that this is a private matter. When the government who put this regulatory regime in place ignored the Law Reform Commission, Justice Keane and the uh, Tribunal Starters of Inquiry and opposition spokespeople, uh, particularly from the Workers' Party, who from 1977 to 1990 repeatedly said, do not do this, have an independent local authority inspection regime. In fact, at one stage during the Iraq debates, uh, uh, Fergus O'Brien, the Minister of State for Fine Gael, says this system is designed to ensure that local authorities do not have a legal obligation to inspect, because if they had that, they would then have a liability should something be found defective that they didn't spot. All of this was about insulating the state from any responsibility uh, to inspect uh, or to cover the costs. And therefore, the state just can't walk away and say nothing to do with us. They put this regime in place despite all the warnings. And therefore, while ultimately industry has to foot the bulk of the bill, the state can't walk away and say it's nothing to do with us either. 
I think uh, Owen gives a very comprehensive and useful for our listeners overview of how that how that process came to be. Jack, I just want to pick a couple of those of those things apart. I mean, I am old enough to remember the 1980s and there was uh, a deep recession and there wasn't much money around and there was a relatively, you know, uh, system of austerity in place. So there wasn't a lot of money. So it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that there was a rational argument that could be made that some of these things would be onerous on local authorities or on builders. But on the other hand, we also remember at that time a very, very close relationship between parts of the Irish political establishment um, and the construction industry and with developers uh, with some pretty sordid goings on over the course of the 80s and the the 90s. Um, I just And the other part of this, which I think is very interesting, is Owen refers to the question, the reluctance to give power or indeed give extra additional duties and resources to local authorities. In a way, this is a perfect picture of the way the Irish state went wrong in certain ways over the course of this period, isn't it? I think it is. Um, I mean, the this is the broader hinterland of what happened um, from the kind of mid to late 90s onwards when you have this extraordinary building boom and, you know, huge amounts of finance flooding into the banks and onwards from the banks into the master ranks of construction companies and property developers. The the binge of of building that happened around then played out, as Owen has has articulated against, a a fairly weak regulatory backdrop. And, And, you know, you do hear absolute horror stories about self-certification you know over the over the years I've, I've covered a lot of these developments and and talked to a lot of people who were in the building trade or you know local authorities and you know they volunteer anecdotes of stuff from during the boom where you know someone would turn up and an architect would turn up to to certify a building and it would be the fourth fifth sixth apartment block they had certified that day and they'd rock in and just have a have a glance at the exterior construction and say that looks fine to me and that's that's the kind of that's the totality of the of the the certification and these things they they coalesce into situations where years later people are sitting at home and there's a very loud noise and it's it's someone closing a door and they go to investigate as to why it's loud and they realize that you know there's a void in the building or there's a flood and it's it's worse than it should be and they go to investigate and they realize there's something else just to be clear on that in those instances there was no professional, legal or financial consequences for the people who had certified that the building was up to scratch? I don't know the exact legal situation, Hugh, with regards to to recourse for that, but that was certainly the situation as it stood when it came to signing off on building at the time during the Celtic Tiger. I think perhaps Owen might be able to come in on the recourse that exists over those professions at the moment. But, you know, the output from it is that, and and when you read these reports that are ultimately end up being commissioned years later by fire safety experts and so on, is that when they open up these walls and they open up these buildings and, and where there should be fire stopping, where there should be gaps... There, there is nothing there. There are voids and, you know, fire doors that don't come up to scratch. And, and I remember uh, back in 2016, one of the first developments I wrote about out in Swords, I, I got an unpublished expert report, which had been commissioned by the local authority. And I remember showing it to an architect at the time, someone who hadn't been practicing during that era. And their, their jaw just hit the floor about the stuff that was in there. You know, the, the, the legacy of the stuff is, is so profound. And, you know, the, the problems are so big and the costs associated with it are so enormous. And that comes back to what I was saying. We only know the, the tip of the iceberg on this. We have no kind of systems wide level view. We, we haven't measured this problem. So how can we begin to solve it? Just on the li- legal liability, because this is really important. And actually, this is something that hasn't changed significantly since Phil Hogan's reforms of Bill of Control in 2014. The problem is, is that a builder uh, does have to comply with the regulations, right? The difficulty is where uh, uh, there is a, a defect and whether that's a defect in the building materials, such as the block in the Western seaboard, in the foundations with Pyrite and Leinster, or in the building process, as Jack has been talking about. The difficulty is the owner of the property has to go to court um, and has to prove in court who is responsible. Pre-2014, that was impossible. And I'm not aware of any legal case, and there have been a few, uh, that has found anybody legally responsible for defects for properties built before 2014. Because what would happen, of course, is, is the builder would play, blame the subcontractor, the subcontractor would blame the architect, the architect, and that would go on in a circular fashion. Since 2014, the situation is there are now assigned certifiers, design and assigned certifiers, who go in, inspect. They are independent on paper. 
Uh, but they are paid by the developer. And in many instances, they're employed by the same architectural company that the developer or the builder used to design. So, of course, there's no real independence. And that's not to challenge the professional integrity of many of the assigned certifiers that are out there, because many of them do a very good job. But they're still ultimately employed by the developer. But even today, if you buy a post-2014 building and you find a defect, you still have to go to court and you still have to prove in the court that the certifier didn't do their job properly. But only up to 10% of those buildings on that development had to be actually inspected. So, of course, if your home is one of the 90%, then the, the certifier isn't necessarily on the hook. And the real question, of course, is it shouldn't just be about the certifier. So uh, um, very eminent scholars in this area, Deirdre Neeline, for example, who's a construction industry legal expert and has done her PhD on this area. She's rightly made the point that even today, it's a completely unsatisfactory position. And on a number of cases where owners management companies, where there are defects, have brought in legal experts. What the legal experts essentially say is, yes, you can go to court but you would want to have very, very deep pockets and a very big taste for gambling to take that risk. And of course, if you're already facing a bill of 10, 20, 30, 40,000 for fire safety or water ingress, or as in the case of defective block, 100, 200, 300,000, where are you going to get the money for that punt on a legal challenge, which is the real problem at present? Can I just ask you just on a follow-up to that, the majority of homes featured in your book, I think, are in apartment blocks and Jack referred to some of the problems with management companies and things like that. Now, of course, there are standalone semi-Ds and things as well, particularly when it comes to the MICA and and pyrite problems. But, you know, Ireland is unusual in, in Europe in that we probably have fewer people living in apartment blocks or did have historically. Is there a sort of a shortfall there in that we, we never put our systems in place? I know you refer in the book to the fact that problems with cheap materials and bad building go all the way back to the building of, of you know, Dublin Corporation flats in the 1930s. Is there a particular problem with apartments? Well, first of all, part of the problem is, is that some of these developments have a mixture of apartments and duplexes, and therefore it can be equally spread among those. And we've also started to see more recently developments that have apartments, duplexes and houses. And the houses, the standalone terraced houses, are actually being drawn into the OMCs in a way that wasn't before. But I think absolutely, first of all, only about 20% of apartments are lived in by the owners of the apartments. There's another 20% that are social housing, and there's a, the, the remainder are, are rented out in the private rental sector. And that creates its own dynamics and problems. But also when lots of people bought apartments, and it's still the case today, they don't understand the legal complexity of the structure that Jack rightly outlined earlier. And therefore, they don't fully understand the liabilities that they then have uh, when defects are discovered, particularly where those defects are in communal areas with fire doors and uh, and the rest of it. They also don't understand that the directors are in many cases just people like themselves who become uh, voluntary directors uh, and, and don't have the skills or the capacity to be professional property managers. The Apartment Owners Network, which is a network of such owners who have been doing great work, kind of trying to make the case for greater support and capacity building for directors and owners in that case. But we've also had bizarre cases where the developer still has a, a considerable interest in the development. I mean, there's there's the one famous one, which which uh, you guys have covered a fair bit in the Irish Times Cathedral Court, where the developer actually retained a majority of the apartments to rent out. I think about 55 of the apartments. The other 45 were privately owned. And when defects were discovered, an EGM of the, the directors was called, which was two people. One was the developer who had 55 votes because he owned 55 of the apartments. And the other was the, the owner who was representing the 45 owners. And of course, the developer comes in and says, well, I think we should spread the cost of these defects evenly across all 100 or so apartments. And the owner said, well, hang on a second, you built this place, surely you should pay. He said, well, let's put it to a vote. I've got 55 votes and you've got 45 votes. And that, that business where developers or people connected with their developers retain an interest through multiple units or proxy votes has created real tensions and divisions within the OMCs. And that, that is a problem. Uh, Cluid and the Apartment Owners Network published a really important report, which I, I, I quote extensively in, in the book, teasing out some of these issues and outlining some of the reforms that need to be made, not just in dealing with defects, but as we're going to be moving towards apartment living, particularly if, if the National Planning Framework and the Government's Housing Plan does what it's, it promises to do, then people need to know what they're buying into or renting into. And people need to be given the capacity and the ability to navigate their way through what can be very tricky circumstances, particularly when there are defects of this kind. So here's one of the things I wonder about, Owen. It seems to me there's a recurring line through this, is that this is best done 
by the state, but at a local government level, because those are the people who are on the ground close to the issues. The reluctance to ever properly resource local government is a recurring bugbear in Irish politics, and it goes back many decades. Do you agree that local authorities should take the lead on this, obviously with the correct legislation and statutory instruments behind them? And if they're going to do that, do they not need to have local revenue raising powers themselves so that they are truly local government rather than just blank slates that do what they're told via county managers and city managers? Look, we have some really good regulatory authorities in this state. The Environmental Protection Agency, the Food Standards Authority, for example, that provide very effective, independent regulatory oversight uh, and enforcement. And therefore, what I'd like to see, and this is something I suppose that we recommended in the Oireachtas Housing Committee in a report that I authored, but got unanimous support back in 2018, Safest Houses. And I make the case again for it in the book. The first thing is, is we absolutely need a strengthening of the building control sections in local authority. And we need mandatory local authority led inspections of all buildings. Uh, if you go to Belfast and you're building your own home, the local authority will inspect that property five or six times during the construction phase and sign off on various stages from foundations to outer layer to energy efficiency and insulation, etc. There's no reason why that shouldn't happen here. I do think, however, there needs to be an independent building control and consumer protection agency. The embryo is there in the National Building Control Office created by Owen Murphy, and that needs to expand for a number of functions. One, it should be where the construction industry register is located. Currently, the proposition is to locate it inside the Construction Industry Federation, which I think by all accounts is the most bizarre proposition. The second is it needs to ensure consistency of approach and standards across the local authority. Third, it would be the body that would inspect independently the local authority construction because you can't have the local authorities inspecting their own bills because we have significant local authority developments probably the most famous of which is my own constituency, Balgadi, which was inspected by the local authority and is rife with defects uh, during the Celtic Tiger. But we also need to to ensure that we have a non-judicial latent defects redress process. So if I come across something defective, I don't have to spend a huge amount of time working out where to go. Not unlike the Residential Tenancies Board, there would be an independent body I would go to. They would provide independent information and advice. They would have legal powers to adjudicate and then enforce developers and manufacturers to rectify. And in those instances, as Jack rightly pointed out, where the developer or the manufacturer is no longer in existence, there is a fund, in my view, funded by industry and by the taxpayer to provide for that remediation. So I think it's a mixture of strong local government and stronger building control and a strong independent agency separate from government to, to, to continue that. And that's, for example, what happens with the Environmental Protection Agency. They work, for example, with environmental enforcement officers and local authorities. The Food Standards Agency does the same. There's no reason why we can't have it for building and residential construction. So what's in the pipeline from the current government, Jack, in relation to the the Homes for All, the Housing for All programme? Uh, so it's it's a separate stream to, to housing for all. There is a program for government uh, commitment to set up a working group to examine the issue of defects, which in fairness was established, I think, in, at, in September of last year and met for the first time March of this year. And it, it is a broad enough group, including, in fairness, representatives of people who are who are impacted and people from the various different regulatory bodies and government departments. Um, so the government has be- begun the work of what one would hope is a kind of new approach or a newish approach, or at least a different approach to how the state has traditionally or historically engaged with this problem. It doesn't mean that the issues are going to be easily solved or solvable. If we take, for example, just the very simple pressing and the most important issue of, of who is going to pay and how how are those payments going to be made. It was hoped that we would get some indication for budget time this year of a redress scheme. That is not going to happen. So the hope amongst people on the group is that there may be something for budget 2023, which you know could actually be Dara Brown's last budget in, in the Customs House. So it might be, you know, one shot to get it right kind of thing. But there are issues around, you know, how exactly do you make redress for people? You know, is it going to be some kind of tax holiday or is it going to be what the people who are impacted don't really want to see a a low cost loan? They don't want to become further encumbered arising from remedying this process. So I think that like, while there has been as I say, in fairness, a departure in how the state interacts with this issue. There's many a slip between cup and lip. And, and, and I would imagine that over the next year or 18 months, we will see a lot of these issues particularly focused around settling the bill, causing issues and conflict on that expert working group. And the degree to which Dara Bryan really, as, as minister, 
can wrangle those different parties towards a solution that is seen to work for all of them will be the litmus test of that commitment in the programme for government. And that's the one that, that, that I'll be looking out for. There'll be some people, Owen, listening to this who will say that you have you have the same luxury as myself and Jack have in that you've never actually had to sit in the custom house and make real decisions in real time in the midst of a real crisis. And I know you're very eager to do that. You've made that clear many times. But, you know, they, they might point out, for example, that cost of housing is already exorbitant in Ireland, that adding another layer of regulation can impact both on that and also on the speed at which turf can be turned on projects and the, that they can be delivered. Should that not at least be taken on board when we talk about introducing these new measures, that they might have a significant drag effect on addressing the, the core problem? Well, first of all, the, the, the argument at the moment is not to change the regulations. It's simply to enforce the regulations that we have. Um, and either a, fo- a house is compliant with fire safety regulations or it's not. So either you're arguing that it's okay to have a property that doesn't meet fire safety standards or it's not okay. And I take a very simple view of this. It's not okay to build a home that doesn't have fire safety standards. It's not okay to build a home like in Milford Manor, for example, in Newbridge and County Kildare, where what was meant to be a 60-minute fire block between each home saw an entire block of five or six homes burned down to the ground in, in 60 minutes. That's not acceptable. Look at the homes in Donegal, in Mayo, in Sligo, in Limerick, and Clare. It's not okay to build homes with blocks that literally crumble around those families. So that's the first thing. The second thing is nobody's saying this can be fixed overnight. Um, but, but if government had done the right thing back in the 70s, we wouldn't be in this mess. And in my view, it is ultimately more expensive, both for the homeowner and the taxpayer, not to adhere to the existing standards. I mean, the, the gross cost of Priory Hall would be 50 or 60 million. The net cost after those properties are all sold would be 20 million to the taxpayer. Pyrite in Leinster has already cost us 60 to 70 million. It's going to cost us more. Jack is right. We still don't have full visibility on defective block or on latent defects in, in apartments and duplexes. We know of 90 developments, not all in the public domain. Uh, and, and there's all sorts of guesstimates out there. Um, um, but let's go back to where this program started. You can buy anything today, right? A, a CD, uh, a newspaper, a, a car, and you take it home, it's defective. What do you do? You bring it back to the shop, you get a refund, you get, you get the product replaced. The only purchase where that principle doesn't apply is the single largest purchase of your life, which is your home. And that's not only an expensive purchase, it's where you and your children sleep at night. And therefore, you want to be damn sure that if there is a fire, all of the safety precautions that are meant to be built into that home are built there. So what I would say is is we have to resolve it. Um, There was a cross-party agreement in the Safest Housing Report as to the shape of what a redress scheme should look like and the broader reforms that are required. In fairness, the program for government for the first time in a long time acknowledges those and says it will review the Safest Houses report. And as Jack says, we'll put up a working group uh, to examine the, the redress. But here's the rub. The state intervened and paid the bill of Priory Hall. The state intervened and paid the bill uh, of Pyrite. So how can it justify not stepping in and dealing with the other defects? And then the secondary issue is the taxpayer shouldn't have to foot the full bill here. Right? Industry has to pay. There are developers out there. Uh, who uh, uh, con- constituted new uh, uh, companies in 2015 uh, are in receipt of very, very substantial taxpayers' grants and are building lots of houses and making a lot of money. And they sat on the board of directors uh, of building companies during the Celtic Tiger that built defective homes and people are facing bills of 10, 20, 30, 40,000 each today. That is not acceptable. And while legally it is very difficult to go after those individuals because they're protected uh, uh, by the legal structures that they used, Uh, politically, ethically and morally, they should not be allowed to walk away. Phil Hogan uh, said when Pirate was first uh, being uh, introduced, the Pirate Remediation Scheme, he was going to get a levy from the construction industry, the insurance uh, sector and the quarries. Uh, Unfortunately, the insurance sector threatened to take him to court uh, and they walked away from that commitment for a levy uh, and they they heaped the bill on the taxpayer. We have to go back to looking either at a voluntary or an imposed levy on industry now. That obviously has consequences beyond that. Uh, But we simply cannot accept the idea that because it is quicker, because it is cheaper, because it is easier, uh, builders, developers, architects and certifiers can allow uh, homes to be built which are not compliant with fire safety uh, and other uh, building standards. Those days have to end. And while it might take us 5, 10, 15 years to work our way through all the defects, uh, and we need to be honest with people about that, problem that has been in place 
particularly from that Dick Spring Cabinet memo in, in 1983, we have to stop that. And either this government is going to do it, uh, or if they don't, uh, uh, and uh, we're ever in a position uh, to try and do it, it'll be up to do it because we can't continue to make the mistakes of the past. Well, indeed. And a last thought from you on that, Jack. Owen is unusual among front-rank Irish politicians in that he puts his thoughts on paper and publishes them in books. This is the second one, I think. There may be more on the subject of housing, but two that I'm aware of. Do you think uh, people will be thumbing through these in four or five years' time when he is sitting in Custom House and saying, you know, you see what happened in Chapter 3 there? Uh, you're really not you're not living up to your commitments. Because these are really sticky challenges in some ways. They're not easy necessarily to address. They're really difficult. And I think that, you know, a degree of creative thinking is is what's needed. But there are ways to address them, you know, and there are ways that it can address them that aren't necessarily, you know, the most obvious. We've we've talked at length already about how difficult it is to, to get your, your legal rights vindicated and how uneven that fight is. But there's, there's one example in particular out in South Dublin at the moment where a group of people are, are trying to stop somebody who previously built a defective development from being granted planning permission for a new one. And I think that, that a bit of lateral thinking around issues and approaches like that and engagement from the planning system and from the state on those kind of issues would be welcome. Phone is is in the uh, the customs house in, in three or four years' time. This will be just one of many problems that he has to, that he has to face, and he wouldn't be the first politician to break a promise if he doesn't if he doesn't face it. What I find more interesting, actually, at the moment, and Owen may may come in on this, is that I mean, you were the primary author of the the safe of houses, safest houses report, right? Isn't that report actually kind of quasi government policy now because it's in the program for government? So have you have you already written government policy on this? Then I mean, I think the, the, the important thing about the Safest House report is is that it, it got cross party support. So you're right, I did author it, but but there are more fingerprints on it than mine. I suppose what the program for government does is is like in so many ways it promises to examine it. Um, uh, I'll be able to claim authorship of government policy if that examination concludes and they implement many of those aspects. My one concern at the moment is is listening to the media reports of the of the, the the goings on in the working group. Is that many of the key recommendations we made, particularly with relation to 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 a latent defects redress scheme, in terms of an industry and revenue levy, in terms of tax relief, particularly retrospective tax relief, uh, aren't been examined. They've actually been excluded from the terms of reference, and it's currently only looking at long term low interest loans. So the jury is out in terms of whether this government is going to implement those policies. But I suppose it does show the, the value. Opposition isn't just about complaining about things. If you use the, the, the avenues that you have, both through Oireachtas committees and others, you can potentially have an influence, nowhere near as much as if you're in the, the custom house uh, itself. Uh, and look, I don't in any way uh, doubt the scale of these issues. But, but uh, uh, my concern isn't that government aren't living up to previous promises. I don't even see them trying. Uh, and I, I think what people want to see on this one is, is a government that is serious uh, to trying to resolve these issues in a way that doesn't place the majority of the burden on the homeowner uh, because they didn't cause these defects. They shouldn't foot the bill. And I think any politician who goes into government and demonstrates that they are trying really hard, even if they don't deliver 100% of what they believe should have been delivered in opposition, I think they'll get credit for it because people will give them credit for the effort but crucially, industry has to be made pay for, for their portion of these defects. And government has to make sure that our regulatory regime changes so this can never happen again. Ona Brin's book is called Defects, Living with the Legacy of the Celtic Tiger. It's published by Merion Press. Thanks to Owen and to Jack for joining us today. Also to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. Do remember that you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. See you soon. <laughs>